in Same business. Risk taking <laughs> yeah. on the mountain. Exactly. So you risk taking is for the mountain. Off the mountain, you're much more conservative, not the same fearless flying down the hill, just taking everything on at once. No, I, I mean, I risk enough on the hill, so I feel like that's that's where I'm going to keep all my risk. Welcome to Needing Dough, the podcast presented by Uninterrupted and Chase. I'm your host, Hawk. Well, Andrew Hawkins, but let's stick with Hawk. Here on Needing Dough, Uninterrupted CEO Maverick Carter sits down with your favorite athletes to talk about how they learn to manage the life-changing amounts of money that becoming a pro athlete can provide. And as a former NFL receiver myself, that's where I come in. I'll be bringing you my personal perspective on how these lessons from legends translate to you and your life. Now, before we get started with this conversation, featuring a literal legend, Lindsey Vaughn, Needing Dough the Podcast is presented by Uninterrupted and Chase. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to shows. And now, the one, the only, literal, living, legend, Lindsey Vaughn joins us here on Needing Dough. This introduction should be pretty easy. Lindsey won a women's record 82 World Cup races over the course of her career. She's also won eight World Cup medals and three Olympic medals, taking home the gold in the downhill in 2010. Oh, and she's regarded as one of the greatest skiers of all time. On this episode of Needing Dough, you'll hear her talk about how hard it is to make a living in competitive skiing and how the Lindsey Vaughn Foundation is empowering the next generation of women. So let's get to it. Here's the big homie Mav in his conversation with Lindsey Vaughn. I want to start with you growing up obviously met your sister just tell us a little bit about what it was like for you growing up obviously i read you grew up in minnesota then moved tell us a little bit about that yes i'm the oldest of five um it's me and my sister and then triplets two boys and a girl wow. so we're, we're a big family so five wasn't planned it just happened oh no it was definitely <laughs> not they were hoping for one boy and they got two and a girl so um I was definitely in charge of a lot growing up, a lot of responsibilities, a lot of diaper changing, um, a lot of babysitting, unpaid babysitting, by the way. Um, but yeah, my family, we all, we all grew up skiing. Um, started off at Buck Hill, Minnesota. It's about 300 vertical feet. It's literally nothing. Yeah, there's no mountains in Minnesota, just hills. No, just hills. hills, yeah. It's literally a stop on the highway. Um, but my dad grew up ski racing, so he kind of got us all into it and then when I was about 11, 12, we moved out to Colorado so that I could ski. You know, I definitely showed some talent and I needed to get to the mountains in order to kind of grow and learn as an athlete and my family supported me so we moved all seven of us out to Colorado. Now that's very interesting. So, grew up in Minnesota and your family decided to move to Vail specifically for you to continue being a skier. And what's your memories of that? Did you feel pressure or did you feel like, wow, they're doing this sacrifice for me or were you just a kid like this is what I'm doing? I think at first I, I thought it was more um, that they were just doing it out of the kindness of their heart, you know, and it was, um, I didn't feel the pressure at all. But as I got older, around the time I was 15, 16, then I really realized how much they had sacrificed for me because when we originally moved out, um, we were supposed to keep both houses, the one in Minnesota and the new one in Vail, and it uh, didn't exactly turn out that way. We kind of went out to Vail and never came back. 
Um, and so, you know, I think it was a really difficult transition for my brothers and sisters as well. You know, they didn't expect to be out there forever and they were disconnected from their friends and had to create new ones. And it was kind of a big upheaval for my entire family. And so I think the, the longer we were out there, the more I realized that. Yep. And I definitely felt the pressure. You know, I felt the sacrifice my family was making um, and I felt the need to perform because my family was riding on that. Yeah, and did they, did you have conversation with them? Did they ever tell you, like, put more pressure on you? Or they just, were they letting you be a kid and skiing, or were they actually putting pressure on you? They didn't, I wouldn't say I, they put more pressure on me. I think it was just more of a, an awareness of what was happening around me and how tight money was. And, I mean, I always knew money was tight. We were, we had five kids, you know, it was never, you know, easy, but my both my parents were lawyers, and uh, for, I mean, most standards, we were very well off, but when we moved out to Vail, everything kind of changed, and, and so, like I said, yeah, it, it just, st the realization of what was happening just kind of became more and more real. Yeah, and at what point did you realize skiing is what I'm gonna do for a living? Like, I can actually be a skier for a living. This is what I'm gonna do. Well, so when I met Peekaboo Street when I was nine, she was my inspiration growing up, and she was the reason why I wanted to be an Olympian. But when I really realized that I could make skiing my profession and I could make money off of it was more when I was 13 or 14, mm -hmm. kind of after I moved out to Colorado. And my goal was to make the Olympics in 2002, which I, I was 17 at the time, or I would be 17. And, you know, my dad had always preached to me growing up that, you know, you don't want to be a ski bum. You know? What's that? <laughs> Is that like just like the people I see in Aspen just like still skiing and they're like 65 and like just still out there? Well, yeah, kind of. It's, um, <laughs> you know, it's just it's like the people that just live and breathe ski skiing and, and they don't they don't mature. They don't grow. They they get to the mountains and then they stop, um, you know, growing as a a person and growing uh, in their career as well. You know, my dad always said um, that he didn't want me to be that. And so I kind of always thought of skiing as a platform to something. Um, and I, I always looked to Peekaboo because at the time she was so successful and I thought, wow, she's so well off, you know, everything's going well. She has this, you know, big, you know, apparel deal and she's got a headgear sponsor and all this stuff. And and uh, she she was the first person to really make good money off of ski racing. And so I thought, well, if she can do it, yeah. I can do it. And um, so when I was kind of making my plan to make the Olympics, I went through it with my dad and, you know, he said, if you can make the Olympic team and reach these and these goals by, you know, five, 10 years, you could potentially be making, you know, this and this much money. Oh, wow. So he had that conversation with you about money. Yes. And how old were you at the time? I was like 13, 14. <laughs> <laughs> we had big, big goals. Jeez. He was on it. He was on it. I mean, I think I do give my dad a lot of credit. Um, he never pushed me, you know, in, in that way uh, when I was growing up. But um, he definitely made me realize a lot of things. You know, he didn't want me. He wanted me to continue growing and to always look at the bigger picture. Um, I think he grew up in a small town, so I think coming from that small town and, and traveling the world, he wanted to really expand my mind and expand yeah. my view of skiing um, and what my potential was. So he started early kind of creating this 
brand. Yeah. You know, I had a website when I was like 15. Jeez. So, and he would, you know, he had articles of, you know, up and coming female sports stars. And he was like, these are people that you should look up to because this is what they're doing. They're not just athletes. They're going beyond yeah. sports. And so and he, that's what I wanted. I mean, that's impressive for him to be thinking that way for you and pushing you in that way. And how did he know that skiing could be your profession? He just saw you and knew you were that good of a skier. He, he understood skiing that well. Yeah, I mean, he was, he was a racer growing up. And, you know, in the beginning, I, wa I, didn't, I wasn't great, you know. But when, when we moved out to Colorado um, around that time, I really showed. He, he, he told me, like, recently <laughs> that when I was 11, he thought, okay, maybe, you know, she could really do something. So he definitely saw potential in me at a young age and saw what I could become, and, and, which is the reason why we moved out to Vail and... Um, and when I made the Olympics, you know, it was kind of it solidified everything that he had thought of. Thought of, yeah. So in, in other sports, obviously in team sports, it's very un easy to understand how an athlete get, gets paid. Play for the team, the Denver Nuggets or the LA Dodgers, you get paid from the team and then you have some endorsements. And even in most individual sports, track and field, tennis, they get appearance fees, they get fees for winning. Skiing is a bit different, I think. So for, the, for those of us who don't understand how skiers make money, explain to us how do, as a skier, do you get paid? Because you don't get paid to, to go to the Olympics, correct? No. No. Uh, we, getting paid through ski racing is very, very difficult. It's a very steep pyramid. Um, if you're not in the top five or ten in the world, you're struggling to not have to get a second job. Wow. Um, it's... It's really crazy, especially on the women's side. I think the men's side, it's a little bit deeper. Um, but we only get paid, we get paid from the International Ski Federation. Um, I believe they changed the rule last year. It's one to 30. So 30th place gets like a check for $200. So like if you go to the World Cup, the 30th place gets a So that's how they it's pay It's not me. like golf or tennis, <laughs> yes. okay? We're yes, not, exactly. We're, there's no six-figure checks there's coming no millions, our way. Yeah. No, and um, I think before taxes, it, every race is different. The organizing committee can determine how that one through 30 uh, money is it's distributed. distributed. Yeah. But normally it's about $30,000 before taxes, wow. and usually we're in another country. So we're taxed from you know Austria or Switzerland or wherever, and then taxed again from the U.S. So really it's nothing. Yes, exactly. And also, how do, I mean... Skiing is an expensive sport. It costs a lot to ski. Yes. So how do they even the people who aren't making much money afford to ski? Well, if you're on the if you're on the World Cup, you're, oh, you're sponsored. You're sponsored. Yeah. You're getting your equipment for free and and normally how they set up contracts in ski racing is your equipment sponsors um, may not necessarily pay you a, a fixed retainer, but they will pay you a victory schedule. Yeah. So if you, you know, are one to three you may get, you know, X amount of dollars, but usually you don't get money if you're not in the top three. Now, the financial world of skiing might be particularly complicated, and I can kind of relate. You see, I had to sign to play in the Canadian Football League, and that was way different than signing in the NFL. Now, I had an NFL agent at the time, but when it came to Canada legalities, even he knew it was the Wild Wild West. So we sought out an expert in CFL contracts. There were so many things we had to consider that were 
just different. The conversion rate, also taxes. I had to pay taxes to the city of Montreal, the province of Quebec, the country of Canada, and my home country of the USA. Also, there were things like the option to defer my payment to a time where the conversion rate was more favorable for me. And these are just things I didn't have to consider when signing an NFL contract. So for Lindsay, and for all competitive skiers, it's important to understand the variables around your money as much as how you're making it. So for you, it sounds like, for you, making money is all about endorsements and, it's all and sponsorship. It's all, literally, yeah. all of that. So if you are, if you, to your dad's point, if you don't build that brand or be thinking about that since a young person, it'd be very hard for you to make a living skiing. Exactly, and, and, and that's where I give my dad a lot of credit because I did think about that and I always have kind of thought of how I can, how I can transcend sport. So uh, I have to go beyond ski racing to make money. You know, it, ski racing is not televised in the United States, which is really depressing. Um, <laughs> Sounds like it's a fight you're, still, you're going, you're having that fight. I cannot tell you how depressing it is. Yeah, I mean, it's, in Europe, it's literally the number one sport. I mean, we are prime time on every channel over there and over here. People don't even know that I'm racing when it's not an Olympic year. Jesus. It's it's crazy. But, um, you know, that's why I think social media is so important and other ways of expanding my brand and transcending sport are that's why I work so hard at it yep. because I that's the only avenue that I have to get enough uh, uh, recognition outside of my sport to get those kinds of endorsement deals to. Yeah, it's, that's a very interesting thing because in other sports, like big American team sports, football, basketball, even some individuals, if if an athlete, not so much anymore because times have changed. But it used to be if an athlete spent that much time doing that, it would be seen as a distraction to what they're doing. But for you, it is the avenue to making and earning a living in a way that can support what you want to do. Well, I think, you know, for me, the number one priority is skiing. You know, the performance comes first. If I don't perform, then I don't get the endorsements regardless of what I'm doing outside of sport. So I think it's always important for me to keep that in perspective. But at the same time, I need to maximize my free time if I'm if I want to make a good living, if I want to really, um, you know, be an American sports star, I have to work that much harder yep. just to be recognized. And and how do you look at sponsors and endorsements? Obviously, there are gigantic companies who sponsor the Olympics and sponsor you know the World Cup. I'm sure. Do you look at those are the companies you go after to attack, or do you look at ones that aren't in the sport and try and bring them into your sport? Um. I look at companies that fit my personality. Um, I look at companies that I want to have a long-term relationship with. Um, you know, companies like Under Armour, Red Bull, Rolex. You know, Rolex was one of, I think, for me personally, the most gratifying sponsor to have because I wasn't necessarily getting paid a lot, but that represented something so much more. Exactly. You know, Rolex is an incredible company. Um, but, you know, I've had long-standing relationships with all my sponsors. I mean, Red Bull, I've been sponsored by them for, I don't know, 13 or 14 years. You know, I, I, I cherish what I have, and I grow the relationship, and we expand together. Under Armour, I was, I'm the longest-standing Under Armour athlete currently, and wow. uh, it's been like 11 years now. Um, and they had absolutely, I mean, 
they had like a couple of pink t-shirts and that was pretty much it when I first started working with them. And I was like, how am I supposed to be sponsored by a company and they don't even make stuff? I can stuff? Wear. Yeah. And, and so, you know, they, it was like, it was a legitimate problem. Um, so I was wearing, you know, they had, the, the reason why I got, I, I started working with them is because they had an amazing product, which was what I wore all the time when I skied, which was their mock turtleneck. And I believed in them, I believed in the company, I believed in Kevin Plank, and he believed in me. And so together we grew, and you know, I, I always, I want to grow. You know, I want to help a company grow, and I want them to help me grow. You know, we, we are supposed to grow together. I don't, I don't look at companies and say, I just want a paycheck from you. Yep. You know, I, I look at it as a mutually beneficial relationship, and, and that's how I've always approached it, and I think it's served me very well. It is. And Speaking of Kevin Plank, who I know really well, very smart guy, very entrepreneurial spirit and passion that you could believe in. So I'm sure not only was it his brand, but it was him as a person that you saw, this is someone I can grow with. So when you're looking at sponsorships or endorsements, are there some companies that you look at and go, well, this is a kind of a newer startup company. I'd rather have equity than them pay. And then how do you balance those two, whether, hey, I'm not going to take money on this, but I'll take a bet with you that you, this person or this company can grow, and I'll help you grow, and I want to be involved in that growth. Yeah, I definitely uh, have equity in some companies. Um, I do want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of the process. You know, Hyperice is a great example. Um, LeBron, I love Hyperice. Yeah, so, I mean, all the NBA players like love it, and it's perfect for me because I have had so many injuries. Um, so it was a natural fit, and you know I believe in their product. I believe in them, and so I didn't take money. I took equity, and um, I'm hoping that eventually down the line things turn out well. Um, but those those types of relationships are pretty rare because a, a lot of people talk a big game, but you know I may not necessarily believe in the product or the people. You know, it has to really fit well with me. You know, I don't, I don't like taking big risks. I'm very conservative um, in how I approach those kinds of deals and with my sponsors. That's a, that's actually a good point because, obviously, as we watch you ski, that's the opposite approach you take to skiing. You're a pretty fearless skier, so obviously you don't. <laughs> I save all my risk taking. <laughs> yeah, we're on the mountain. Exactly. So you risk taking is for the mountain, off the mountain. You're much more conservative. Not the same fearless flying down the hill, just taking everything on at once is no, like that. I, I mean, I risk enough on the hill, so I feel like that's that's where I'm going to keep all my risk and everything else with my money, you know, I'm I'm very conservative and, you know, like I said, same with sponsors and, and companies that I work with. I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not a huge risk taker. Exactly. And you obviously spend a lot of time training, performing, and traveling around the world performing because your, your sport takes you all over the world, but you're obviously very focused and have a deep understanding of business and money. How do you take time to manage all those things? The money, the new business opportunities, because it sounds like you're always looking for new business opportunities that are great ones, and actually spending the time with the people. Like when you talk about Under Armour, you talked about Kevin Plank, so you're spending time with people. How do you take the time to manage money versus performing versus training? How do you manage all of that? Well, time is definitely limited, so I look for relationships that are high quality. Um, I don't do, you know, I'm not the kind of person that I'll do a lot of little small deals to add up to, you know, the amount of money I'm looking for. You know, I, I definitely um, look for quality sponsors, quality relationships. Um, I don't, 
uh, I try to maximize the time that I have. You know, I don't try to spread myself too thin. I know my limitations. And, you know, if there's a great deal and they want 10 days with me, and that's just not, it's not realistic. So, you know, I have to be upfront with them. And if that doesn't work, then, you know, the relationship's not meant to be. But um, important for me, like I said earlier, is to make sure that priority remains on performance. And the remaining time, I just have to be very careful how I manage it and, and build those relationships that are important to me. Exactly. So as you've now been skiing and doing this for a while, skiing and managing business and managing money, if, as you look back to the, the younger version of yourself, is there any advice or about money or about business that you would give your younger self, like watch out for this or do this or don't do that? Um, maybe don't get married. <laughs> How old that's, were you when you got great, married? That was a great one. <laughs> Live audience, this is what exactly, it's for, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, I was married at 22. Whoa, that yeah. is young. Yeah, so maybe, you know, maybe just go a long-term relationship. Yeah. Maybe the... <laughs> that's the biggest advice. That's, yep. that's good advice. So anyone in here not married and young. You've got that advice for free. Forewarned. Exactly. You're forewarned. You're forewarned. And, and when it comes to money, we all have things that we love to buy. And even things that we're like, I want to stop buying this, but you can't, it's like guilty pleasure. What is yours? What is your thing that you love to, to splurge on? Um, you obviously get watch, beautiful watches for free, yeah, I'm sure. So Hopefully they come with your deal. That's a gorgeous Thankfully, watch. I don't have to pay for these. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, I would be buying them. Um, no, I I spend money. I, I'm very frugal, but I kind of Louis Vuitton is my I have a problem. Really? It's my initials. That is a good point. And I think about that. It's, so it's like listen, everything is made for yeah, me. Exactly. You have to have everything. I know. Yes. But so I've I've made myself. I've limited myself. I will only buy it something from Louis Vuitton on my birthday. Yep. Or if I win a race. Well, that's a big a race. It has to that's be like, what I was to say. You're always well, winning races. That's a, that's have, a lot. I have to like, like last year, I think I bought one thing. Uh-huh. So it, it literally probably big maximum thing, is like. Big thing, small thing? A big like purse, purses. A purse, yeah. That's shoes. a big thing. Those are big things. Or, or the other thing that I love buying is houses. But I, it's not like I. This is, that's funny. This is like, this is. That's a, that's I, a big Serena, thing. Serena's Serena said the same, the same thing. thing. Okay. But like. Okay, it's not like I'm just like buying all these houses. I just I buy a house and I like selling it because I like I don't know, I like I like designing it myself, you know. I, I don't spend money like I'm so frugal that I don't want to spend money on an interior designer, but you, I want a new house. So you I do know that makes no sense. It makes, zero, it makes sense. zero sense. So like don't yeah, that that advice that's so another you, thing, you just don't So you justify buying a new house based on the fact that I'm gonna design it myself, so of course I can get a new house. I mean, I save money, you know. And has there been has there been a house or any other purchase that you regretted that you look back and like, I wish I didn't do that one. I I bought some land that I wish I hadn't bought. Do you still land own is it? actually were you able to difficult get rid of it? to resell? Who would have thunk? It is. It depends on where it's at. Where was it at? Right next to my house. <laughs> Anyone want to buy it? It's still for sale. Jeez, it's still for sale. It's, it's why don't you just build it 
I didn't. Okay, so what this is my plan? problem: yeah. is that I had a, I have a house and I bought the land next to it, and I thought that one day I might expand and have like something else over there. But for the time being, it was great for my dogs. Okay, <laughs> I know that sounds ridiculous, <laughs> but I love my dogs. Um, but I what I didn't do is I wasn't thorough on um, the due diligence, and I didn't realize that it was so difficult to build on. Oh. So that's why it's difficult to sell. Of so while it was really appealing because it was right next to me and you know, I had all these grand plans, I didn't think it through. Yeah, and something like that is interesting because it's difficult, so they probably had a difficult time selling it, but you were the only person who had made sense to buy it because it was right yeah, next to me. Yeah, I was like, this Nobody is great. Else is who, buy wants to, who doesn't want to buy this? <laughs> yeah. Nobody else is going to no buy it. No one wants to buy it. And you I mean, I am a great neighbor. I'm I sure. do have three dogs, unfortunately, so. And they're all nice dogs, I assume. Now let's get back to the conversation with Lindsey Vaughn. So a, a topic we've discussed on Needing Dough before with other female guests is the, is the wage gap in sports and specifically their sport. Is there a wage gap in skiing? Do men make a lot more than women or is it not that in skiing? Um, the prize money for races is, is the same, um, which is very minimum. Um, but... I mean, everyone talks, you know, all of our contracts are confidential, but I, I roughly know how much the men make and how much the women make. Um, it is a pretty severe gap. And men make a lot more than women. But that's the problem is that it's not open. It's not, you know, like NFL or NBA contracts where everyone knows how much money you make. Yes. It's uh, all a guess unless they tell you directly, yes. which most likely they won't. Um, and so it's difficult, you know, when I when I first started winning World Cups and, you know, there are people like Bodie Miller out there and, and he was making a, a killing. I mean, he was just making so much money. And I'm like, I don't understand. I, I'm winning more than him, but I'm making an incredibly smaller amount than he is. It's, I mean, it, the gap was huge. And, and that actually made me just more determined to win more. You know, I knew that I would have to work harder to get the kinds of contracts that he was getting. Um, and so that was just another form of motivation for me. Yeah, and now obviously you've become the most successful female skier of all time, the GOAT in your sport. Is it important to you as basically the leader of women's skiing to make, to make a change or make a difference in that or close the gap a bit? I mean, I, I would love to, but it's, like I said, it's really difficult when all of your contracts are confidential. It's difficult to say, well, you make this much and you make this much, and why is there such a big gap? Um, you know, you could say that, um, you know, the men have a, a, a bigger um, presence in social media or in the media in general, um, which isn't true, but, you know, there's always an argument to be made. So there, it's, it's not a direct comparison. It's difficult to do that, but um, I'm hoping that I can get women in ski racing more publicity and give them the push and the platform that they need to make more money. Yeah, and I think, you know, I've read for you through um, VF through your foundation, empowering young women is a, is a big focus for you. Is, is financial literacy a part of that empowerment to make sure young women are financially empowered to make, whether it's in skiing or other sports or other professions, financial decisions the same way men get to? Um, to be honest, I haven't thought about it that way. Um, I've focused more on 
giving them the tools to help them make smart decisions, not necessarily financially, but just in life. Um, and also, it's more about being positive with their self-image and their self-worth, not having it be related to money or comparing to males or females, just be confident in themselves. So I think maybe actually that is a great point that I will think about in the future. But for right now, you know, we're starting with ages, you know, 11 to 14 and more focused on, like I said, their self-confidence. And just getting them to feel the way that, that men and young men feel. That's, that's amazing. I also think, you know, in the past you've talked about a matchup between a man and a woman and competing in your sport against men. And obviously, as we sit here today, you're on the verge of becoming the winningest skier of all time, men and women. Is it important to you to have, do you want to have a matchup with a man or do you want to see a co-ed competition in skiing eventually? Yeah, it's really important to me. It's just something that I've been motivated to accomplish for since 2012, I think. Um, you know, I train with the men all the time. Um, I'm always right there, I'm right in the mix. I meet, I beat a substantial portion of them. Um, and actually, I'm presenting a proposal, or my, the U.S. ski team is presenting a proposal to the International Ski Federation in a few days. So hopefully, um, we'll get some positive feedback. But so far, preliminary uh, reactions are not great. Is not great from the U.S. Ski Federation or from the men? Are they scared? No. Well, <laughs> that's to be determined. That's, yeah, that's, uh, something that, that's unknown. That's not quite clear. That's unknown. But, um, you know, the U.S. team is behind me, and most of the World Cup men are behind me. It's just the institution. Um, the International Ski Federation thinks it's a joke, honestly. They, they don't have enough respect for me to actually consider this as a real proposal. And um, the Austrian ski teams come out today um, with some tweets that it's laughable and that I'm a princess and all of these things. And it's frustrating to hear because um, this is my own personal ambition, but I believe that I have made it far enough in my career that I should have at least the respect for the consideration and not just simply laughed out the door because I'm a woman trying to race with the men. I'm not going to win, I realize that, um, but I think I could be competitive and I would like the opportunity to see where I stand. And when you practice with the men, is there some shit talking going on? Or is it yeah. just like, is there, oh, yeah. are when you I, talking shit? Are you? 100%. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I'm big on that. Um, I think. <laughs> I think it's really healthy, um, and I it pushes me harder. I know it pushes them harder. And when I was training with the Canadians a few years ago, um, they had a bet internally with the team. Whoever I beat had to do dishes. But there were so many of them that I beat that they all had to just take turns <laughs> who was doing the dishes. <laughs> so um, it's fun, you know. I, I like I like stuff like that. And and honestly, when I when I'm training with the men, the men have respect for me and they enjoy training with me. And I feel like it fuels this really nice competitiveness. It, I don't I don't feel um, you know I feel like when I'm one of the guys when I'm training with them but it's the institution that doesn't want it to happen. And I'm not quite sure why, because I think it would be great for the sport and, um, and get that, uh, that exposure that we desperately need. I agree. And I th do you think, in your head, is this something that you just want to do or you want to see this happen going forward, even after Lindsay's done skiing? 
Um, I want to do it for me, but I also don't, I, I, I don't want to be last. So, you know, I don't want to have this drag out and then by the time my career is over, I finally get an opportunity and I'm out of shape and, you know, there's no point in that. Um, so I'm hoping that, you know, the process gets sped up a bit. I don't have, you know, that much longer left in my career, but it's, it's a personal ambition. And I think, um, I realize that my personal ambition and I think, you know, the men realize my personal ambition can, um, amount to a lot more than just that. So hopefully, hopefully it happens. Yeah, I think, I mean, for me, that would draw a lot of attention to skiing if there was an actual competition of co-ed, because I don't know of any other sport on a professional level where men and women compete. I, I've never seen that, so I think that would draw, it would draw a lot of attention to the sport of skiing, especially in America, because you know, Americans always go for the hype. We need something to get everyone excited. You know, you need a boxer fighting a UFC fighter to get everyone excited. So I think that would be something that would be pretty amazing to see. Yeah, I mean, if you're at that level, why am I restricted that possibility just because of my gender? Yeah, exactly. And have you thought about after skiing what you want to do? Obviously, you have a lot of business interests. You have probably sponsorships and partnerships that you'll keep going. Have you thought about what else you want to do? Well, I mean, I've, I've definitely been thinking about what that day would look like when I retire um, for quite some time. And, you know, I've thought ahead when making contracts. You know, most of my contracts will continue on after I retire. Um, but, you know, I'm looking into, I actually just applied for a Harvard, Harvard Business School. Oh, wow, really? Um, yeah, Boston. of course. So, With Anita? Um, I'm not sure. I think the professor's name is Anita. You'll be taking her Okay. Class. Well, if I get in, maybe I'll get I in. I think you will. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I, I want to learn. I'm, I'm really hungry for knowledge. And, you know, obviously I've been in a world where um, I've kind of been in a bubble. And I've always tried to, like, I, like my dad always said, you know, to think big and, and not be a ski bum. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, when I retire, I'm going to keep every door open. And I think some of the relationships that I've created throughout my career will hopefully come in handy and help bring me to the next phase of my professional and life. Will you ski after you're done skiing professionally? Will you continue to ski a lot like depends on how bad my knees get by the <laughs> gotcha. time I retire. Gotcha. Um, I I'm sure I will ski. Like I, I don't foresee my life ever existing without skiing in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, and for you, you're obviously the greatest of all time when it comes to female skiers. But how important is it for you to also break all the records, men and women, and be the winningest skier of all time? It's very important. Like I literally am not going to stop skiing until I, I reach that mark because I don't like being the best female. I really don't. I want to be the best of all time, period. Um, and I realize that that's a, it's a difficult comparison to make because, you know, Ingemar Sundmark, who currently holds the record, skied, I don't know, what is it, 40, 50 years ago. Um, <coughs> and times have changed. But for me, just to have that record would solidify my career and then I can say I'm the greatest and I don't need to say female or American you know it's Just it really bothers greatest. me they're like oh you're the best American I'm like <laughs> no, no that's not it exactly well I think you will I think you'll break all the records and be the greatest skier of all time thank so you. great way to end it thanks again for joining us on Need and Dough and thanks to our live audience
That does it for this episode of Needing Dough the Podcast, presented by Uninterrupted and Chase. As always, thank you for tuning in. We are here again next week with a brand new episode. So if you like what you heard today, make sure you tell a friend or drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's free, it's easy, and it helps other people find the show. Thanks again to our partners for this show, Chase. Head over to Chase.com to see what Chase has to offer. Our executive producers are myself, T.D. St. Matthew Daniel, and Ben Adair. And I'm Andrew Hawkins, a.k.a. Hawk, telling you what a wise man always told me. A penny saved is a penny earned.